The word of the Lord from the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. We're reading chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The uh, Christian church uh, has an abiding belief in miracles. Uh, By miracles, I mean that God directly intervenes uh, in life uh, in all the ways that he sometimes uh, does. Uh, And uh, Christmas, in that sense, is a miraculous event. Uh, The account that we have read this morning is uh, full of miracles. As a reminder to all of us that as Christians, uh, we are the product of the great miracles of God. Uh, The first miracle of our text is that simply of the miracle of divine revelation, that God takes the initiative uh, to knock on Joseph's door, to come to him in a dream and to reveal himself and what he's about to do. Uh, Joseph, uh, as you know, is pondering how to quietly put his wife away uh, because she is with child prior to the consummation of the marriage. Uh, I suspicion, while the text is silent to this event, that uh, uh, he was in uh, grave despair. Imagine the love of uh, his life has been disloyal. probably wondered where he went wrong, why his promises weren't enough. Nonetheless, they went terribly wrong in his own estimation. In uh, Jewish law, the betrothal period was uh, a contract period. And if uh, a maiden broke the contract, uh, she was to be stoned to death. Of course, in Joseph's day, uh, Rome was the supreme law, and Rome cared little about Old Testament law, uh, much less a maiden who went awry. So in that sense, uh, Joseph quietly plans to divorce his, his wife. Then a miracle comes to him. God interdicts him in a dream. I happen to belong to the company of those who believe that uh, divine revelation has uh, ceased. That uh, in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. We're to hear Him. And that that word about the Son has been captured for us in what we call the Bible, a divine revelation that is written down that we can preserve and keep and have forever. Nonetheless, it is that revelation in a dream in which God comes and tells Joseph something that's remarkable. It's not as you think, the angel says. 
She is with child by the Holy Spirit. A divine event in the miracle of conception and the incarnation. We know from other texts that Mary was staggered by that revelation. What is miraculous about it is, as you can well imagine from your own understanding of biology, both Joseph and Mary were passive in the conception. How did it happen? God came in a miracle. And so God is acting. God takes the initiative to act. And God reveals himself. By the way, there's a wonderful application here that really we should ponder for a moment. We live in a culture in which famous men and women come and go. They inscribe sometimes their names on buildings. They have statues all over the place. Perhaps you've had the privilege of walking down Statuary Hall in the nation's capital. Men that we cherish in our own culture and our own civilization who've laid the foundwork of freedom. But the Bible says something that's very unique about all men. It likens them in one of the great metaphors that they're like flowers. They come and they bloom and they blossom. They're like the grass. And then you know what Isaiah says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. And that is a miracle that you and I perhaps have all over our homes. The Word of God divine revelation that interdicts us on occasion when we are despondent or in despair. David says in Psalm 119, your promises preserve me. And it is just that that happens to Mary and Joseph. The promise of God comes to Joseph to preserve the event, to keep it in all of its pristine glory that God has come in His Son. A great miracle. The consequence of this particular miracle of conception is, the angel says, Mary will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. The name is the Greek form of Joshua, or Yahweh saves. It is... Stunning in its implication, in verse 22, we have an additional focus. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The event that is occurring, therefore, as Joseph hears it and perhaps contemplates it, is utterly messianic. The entire redemptive focus of the Old Testament now has come to rest upon this child. If you think about the contemporary culture in which Joseph lived in, they were ruled over by Rome and all of its tyranny and brutality. There were great uh, uh, messianic forces at work in the nation who wanted to cast Rome off, uh, uh, who wanted to fight, uh, but God comes in son. Uh, he doesn't need uh, swords to advance his kingdom. He has his own way. As the son displays in the very nature of his birth, we can think about it. The entire redemptive focus, everything about the tabernacle, everything about the temple, everything about the great leaders, Joshua, and on and on, Moses, 
comes to Christ and stops and salutes. Great miracle of the conception of Jesus. Contextually, Joseph was in the line of King David. And the Old Testament was clear that the Davidic covenant was a promise of perpetual rule. And God is now acting to fulfill and consummate the promise in Jesus. Uh, I know of virtually nothing absent the Scriptures that's perpetual. Senators come and go. Presidents come and go. The great navies of the world come and go. Used to be said of the British Empire that the sun never set. Well, it sets all the time on the British Empire. Nations rise in prominence and then they go into deep decline. But the perpetual rule of Christ as the great everlasting Davidic king is a promise that's engaged because he has taken his hand, his seat at the right hand of God the Father where he rules, and the church oftentimes says of that rule, world without end. And the miracle of Christ by the great king. He is the last in line of the kings of Israel with none to supersede him. No one eclipses him and no one follows him. He comes and that perpetual rule engages him and him alone in this great miracle of conception. The great Davidic king, greater than David could ever imagine, is now taking his seat at the greatest throne of all of the world, the throne of heaven. An infinite perfection, of course, brooks no competitors. Atheists come and go. Agnostics come and go. The Word of God stands forever, and the Lord reigns forever. The reason for the name Jesus is stated by the angel because He will save His people from their sins. Again, another miracle, the miracle of salvation. Uh, it's very interesting to me uh, that in this very simple sentence, he will save his people from their sins. There's but one subject. He, Christ. Now, we oftentimes uh, in the church uh, confuse salvation as the product of multiple subjects and multiple sources. I tell you the revelation of this angel has only one subject. He will save his people from their sins. That there is only one Savior, that salvation is uniquely tied to Him alone. Now, Luke says in the book of his history of the early church, salvation is found in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. That the necessity of salvation is only had in Christ, and everyone and everything is excluded but Him alone. If there is ever salvation in the heart of a man or heart of a nation or the heart of a tribe or the heart of a family, it's because Christ fulfilled his office. 
The future tense of this climactic verb to save speaks to absolute certainty because, again, God is the subject. You and I use the future tense all the time, different ways. Honey, I'll be home at noon. It's a good promise. Is it certain? Is it adorned with absolute certainty? What may happen to you on the way home? A train interdicts you crossing the railroad tracks. You have a heart attack. Our promises come and go. promise of God, He will save His people forever, is one of absolute certainty. Think about it. We live in a culture on a quest for certainty, but it's never to be had in save this very simple sentence. What lasts forever? Our technology, the brilliance of the field of medicine, everything constant change, not so Christ. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because infinite perfection and beauty needs never to change. In the Old Testament history of redemption, saviors failed or were temporary. Let me think of the book of Judges. The nation would fall into apostasy and despair and be ruled over, and God would raise up a judge. They would last but for a season. Uh, think of Joshua. What a great leader, but uh, even Joshua eventually dies, or Moses. Again, they. They failed or were temporary. But in Jesus, there is decisive permanence. The word permanence evokes something of the divine miracle of the majesty of the Christ. What in our life is permanent? Christ is. They're respecting salvation is the sole cause. As God, the outcome is certain, and there can be no failure. This is more than a promise. He came to save His people from their sin. This is something that absolutely happened in what we know as the cross in the coming of the Son. I mean, imagine what Joseph thought. Well, what kind of promise is this? The Son's going to be born? He's going to do something that's forever? He's going to save His people with definite certainty? That's one of the greatest promises that's ever been brooked in the history of the world. But it happens, does it not? As God, the outcome is certain, and of course, uh, there is no failure. Furthermore, salvation is only in Him and by Him. What strikes me in this simple sentence, and I don't know if you caught it, but uh, the simplicity of the definite object is people. going to save His people. Meaning not all are saved. And that if you're saved, it's only in Him and by Him. And of course, we know from the rest of the Scripture for Him. Because His work is so majestic, He gets all of the glory. That's why the subject here is unique. He is going to do it. Because if there is anything that we could do, what we could do, because it is so absolutely temporal, it would eventually unravel as all of our lives do.
but he does not unravel, and therefore he acts with certainty and a definite purposefulness to win his people forever. Of course, not all are saved. Some are lost because ultimately they are not his. You might be saying to yourself, why in the world would you bring that up on Christmas morning? Because any other concept of the definiteness of the work of our Savior tarnishes his glory. If all that was given to him by the Father, if some of those are lost, then he is less than a perfect Savior. But I would argue otherwise, all of his people are going to be saved. They can brook none else because of who he is and what he does. I remind you in one of the great arguments of the New Testament, John chapter 10, uh, Christ is uh, depositing before the uh, religion of his day and the Pharisees and Sadducees that he is the good shepherd, conjuring up the majesty of all of the shepherds of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, of course, the kings were shepherds. They cared, protected their people. Uh, They resourced them with all that they needed, but Christ is now the last shepherd to stand. Of course, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees rejected uh, that demarcation of Christ of himself. He turns to them and says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. I'm just simply saying from this text that our Savior came with a definite purpose. His coming was a purposeful coming, and he gets what he came for, and none are lost. One of my favorite uh, sayings of uh, the theology of the 23rd Psalm is that there is only one shepherd beyond the grave. At the grave, every other shepherd turns back. Every philosophy, every equation, every king, prince, every president, only one goes beyond it, and that is Christ, because he came to save his people from their sins. John 19.30 on the cross, on the last words of our Savior, it's finished. What was finished? The saving of his people. Not one was lost. In our case, if you're a Christian, you were yet future. But because of his power, he can even save the future because of who he is. You think of it, the past and the present, those are easy deals, but he saves the future. You and I were yet to be born. He won our salvation. It's finished, he said. Second chapter of the book of Colossians, Paul writes of the work of Christ that he canceled out the certificate of debt. You and I as fallen creatures have an infinite debt before an infinite God. He cancels it out. Think of the debt that you have, not to depress you. Maybe you have a mortgage or car payment to do, whatever it is. Maybe you're struggling with your finances. In the case of our debt before God, uh, Christ rips it up. And by the way, once the mortgage is returned to your home, paid in full, uh, the bank will never come after you, will it? Well, Christ does exactly that. He pays it in full, and that's why he cries upon the cross, it is finished. It's an incredible act of certainty in light of who Christ is, what he did. That we are special, for he made us so in the creation. We're all the more special because he came to rescue us forever. 
And for those that are his, it is the greatest rescue operation of all time. I've mentioned this a couple of times, uh, previous sentences, but Gospel of John, one of my favorite prepositional phrases, that of Christ, uh, none who belong to him are lost because of who he is. You and I give up most everything in life. We have to let it go. It's either taken from us or at some point we lose the ability, the strength to hold on to it. Once Christ saves his people, he never lets them go. The modifying phrase from their sin specifies, again, the purpose of his coming. Sin is what separates us from God and the cause of all and every misery in this life. Imagine if I could transport this small church to Aleppo. What misery there is in this life. What's the answer to that misery? One of my favorite confessions is that of the shorter catechism of the Westminster Standards. Difficult question, to what estate did the fall bring mankind? The answer, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. It's incredible, the misery of life. But the answer is Christmas. The miracle of Christmas. A rabbi once wrote a book, A Lot of Bad Things Happen to Good People. Well, I don't know about the good people, but bad things happen because of the fall of Adam. But that's not the end of the story in the history of redemption because the last Adam comes and fixes everything that the first Adam broke. If you're a Christian, the last Adam is your forefather who preserves, keeps, ensconces you in the promise of everlasting life. Again, the answer to misery and sin is the miracle of Christmas that Jesus removes an eternal object by his infinite perfections and we are reconciled to God forever. The Apostle Paul writes in perhaps the greatest theological treatise of all time, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine all the world over, people craving peace. We have it in the Son, having been justified by faith. He goes on in the 8th chapter, in the first verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That simple prepositional phrase, in Christ, if you are in Him, condemnation from God will never knock on your door, will never reach you by phone, will never email you because of what Christ did for His people. In the simple sentence, He will save His people from their sin. In the commentary of John in the book of the Revelation, uh, the 12th chapter is very instructive. Uh, Satan is uh, seeking to destroy Jesus. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 12, in the fifth verse, speaking of the church, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nation with an iron scepter, 
and her child was snatched up to God into his throne. Satan thought he had him in a moment on the cross, and then God snatched him to himself, what we know as the resurrection. That not even death could get in the way of Christ saving his people. Death, that terrible event. We all try to keep it out of our minds. Uh, we hope it doesn't come very early. Uh, but we see it everywhere, not for the Christian. Since Christ was snatched up to God in his throne and we are in him, we too will be snatched up to God in his throne. He was born a king and his throne in heaven is unassailable. No one can get at him because of who he is. If I can paraphrase the simple sentence that he will come and save his people from his sins, I would do it perhaps in this way. This is the greatest event of all time, the greatest victory of all history by the greatest person that's ever walked upon this earth with the greatest certainty from the greatest disaster to the greatest company and to the greatest end in the greatest possession, the forgiveness of sin. Jesus came for us, the miracle of Christmas, and we are saved forever. As the sons of God, we possess in Him eternal forgiveness and the promise of everlasting restoration. The miracle of Christmas is something else. It's the miracle of the church. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 5 that he came uh, to save his church. He loved his church. That's just simply an analog that he came to save his people. He loved his church to the end. We are the people of God and Christ loved us and loves us. In a world starved for love, the church uh, possesses the ultimate reality and the eternal love of the Son of God. Now, the church is a miracle that leaves us a great testimony of what Christ has done. Uh, it is, I think, uh, to make an appendage to what I said earlier, the greatest of all institutions. Where's the Roman Senate of the Caesars? Uh, where's the, the seats of the glory of the pharaohs, the gardens of Babylon? Again, where's the British Navy, the small regional force unable to project worldwide power? The church, because it's redeemed by Christ, is the greatest institution of all time, loved of God, beloved of God, never absent the love of God. Paul says of Christ and his work for the church that he will present to himself the church without spot or wrinkle in all of its glory. You and I throughout all of our lives are fighting spots and wrinkles in our lives. The church will be rid of it all when he comes to win her for everlasting salvation. And he will present to himself the church in all of its glory as the bride of Christ. That, my friend, is a miracle. To belong by Christ to the church. The church of Christ. One of the testimonies of the church, Christ our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings, comfort, and joy. Mild he lays his glory by, 
born that man no more may die. That he hath opened heaven's door and man is blessed forevermore. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. It's the miracle of Christmas, the testimony of the church. Everlasting, eternal institution because of the work of the Son of God. I close uh, with another miracle that I trust uh, you are in possession of. It's the miracle of the new birth. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. The gospel comes to the Gentiles. And uh, as many, Luke writes, has been ordained to eternal life believed, meaning that their ordination to eternal life preceded their believing. The miracle of the new birth as many as had been appointed to eternal life believe. I understand the importance of belief. It's the instrumental cause of receiving and holding fast to Christ, but it's the work of heaven. Acts chapter 16, the 14th verse, the Apostle Paul is uh, preaching a sermon. There's a woman there named Lydia. And uh, Luke says of Lydia that the Lord opened her heart. My friend, that's a miracle. You know the heart of man? Welded shut to interest in the things of God. Doesn't stop God. He opened her heart. She believed and came to faith. Became a Christian. And the miracle of the new birth because of the miracle of Christmas. Now, the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 5, we believe because we were born again. In other words, the new birth preceded our believing. The miracle of the new birth because of the miracle of Christmas. It's another miracle that we're going to experience this morning in God's good providence. That is the provision of the Lord's table. God just doesn't come and go. He knows that we continually, uh, continually fight battles. We continually struggle with the baggage of life. We uh, continually uh, uh, fail. Uh, he knows we are hungry and thirsty, and yet He comes to make another provision for us in the miracle of the sacrament of the Lord's table. Uh, the sacrament has, as one of its great backgrounds, the feeding of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. I'm simply reminding you that you and I are in the midst of a wilderness on our way to heaven. And sometimes, like the nation of Israel, the water grew scarce and perhaps the quail didn't show up. But we know from the promise of God, the quail was always there and God always had a well in His divine provision. The sacrament of the Lord's table is just such a reminder to each of us of the miracle of God's constant provision give to you a biblical warrant for uh, the Lord's table. Uh, John chapter 6, uh, reading verses 48 to 54. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, Jesus says, which a man may eat and not die. I am, Jesus says, the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
goes on to say the same respecting his blood. You drink my blood, you have the forgiveness of sin. At Grace Bible Church, uh, we acknowledge uh, an open communion table. By that, I simply mean uh, this is the Lord's table and not the table of Grace Bible Church. If you are a Christian and uh, not living in some known sin for which you are unrepentant or uh, in some type of uh, abject rebellion against God, then the table is again presented to you. Because God knows that we hunger and thirst. He knows the struggles of life. He knows because he was incarnate in the Son of God. And he leaves to us an everlasting table, and the sacrament of the Lord's table that will ultimately find its greatest fulfillment and the greatest celebration in heaven when his people sit down to sup with him and to drink with him forever. The church says of that event, world without end. But in this provisional times, uh, he comes to remind us of his provision. I would simply remind you as the church that it's not in the physical. It's not in the bread or the wine. It's in the faith that apprehends what the bread and the wine stand for. The work of the incarnate Son of God in the shedding of his blood, that we are his people. We come hungry and thirsty, and he comes to nourish us, that we might have strength to continue to live for him. It's an expression, again, of the miracle of divine love. So if you're a Christian, the table is for you. Again, it's not the table at Grace Bible Church, it's the table of the Lord. As I uh, break the bread, as the service is passed, I simply ask that you would hold the bread until which uh, all are served, that we might uh, partake and eat together to display to the world that we are one people with one Lord and one salvation, namely Christ our Redeemer. Again, perhaps there's uh, something that you need to get right before the Lord, or perhaps you might simply need to break off and begin to praise Him for what it means that He came to save you from your sins and you were so saved forever. It's a celebration. We celebrate meals in our culture. That's what we're going to do this morning in the Lord's table in the sacrament. We're going to celebrate Christ, His everlasting provision for His church. After which time that all are served, I will give thanks, and we will eat together. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table.